This week, we discuss major identities and microservices. In the news segment, things get fuzzy for kernels, passwords go plain text, dependencies become dependable, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 63, recorded June 3rd, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hey, John. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Pretty good. John is joining us across space and time right now in London, I believe. Is that right? Yep, I'm in London for this week. I'm out here for some uh, some quality stuff as well as to see InfoSec Europe. Awesome, one of my favorite places. Register for our upcoming webcast with Logarithm, Domain Tools, and SaltStack by going to securityweekly.com slash webcasts. If you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find our on-demand library at securityweekly.com slash on-demand. Security Weekly is returning to Vegas this August for Black Hat and DEF CON. If you would like to request a briefing or sponsor an interview on site at Black Hat, please go to securityweekly.com booking and submit your request. So we don't have a guest today, so I thought we'd turn to some DevSecOps topics. A lot of times, we, in the news especially, we talk about bugs and breaches. Uh, which are a really good way to touch on anti-patterns and to talk about how we can learn from them to improve software. Uh, but John, this time I thought it might be equally interesting to talk about what do good design patterns look like? And what are these design patterns that have emerged from cloud native environments or coming from that DevSecOps principles of not only developing code, but actually owning it, maintaining it, and seeing how it works in production systems? You know, I think we're at a really interesting time. If you look at the last, call it two or three years, as this cloud native thing has been happening, uh, personally, I'm starting to see two things, two patterns here. What is a lot of folks are asking me, really, what you want to talk about here today, what we want to talk about of um, what's the right way to do this stuff. And then the second part is uh, you're starting to see a lot more interest in really making that CI CD more efficient. We've had, you know, Jenkins has been around for probably longer than I want to remember, but we've had these tools for a long time, but now the interest in them and not just having them, but using them as efficiently as possible is really starting to get on people's mindsets. So yeah, it's a good topic to chat about. Yeah, and I think, you know, the last several episodes, at the very least, we've been talking quite a bit about Kubernetes and containers. Those always come up because those seem like one of the, the basic building blocks of these services. And at one point, we also talked about um, Envoy, 
um, open source um, project that came out of Lyft, which was a way for you know containers to talk to each other. And then just this uh, past week, I uh, came across an article from Facebook that talks about essentially how they have their services identify each other and authenticate with each other. So it's sort of this progression of here's a little service, sandbox in a container. Now these one and many containers need to talk to each other, but we need to throw, you know, so there's a little bit of DevOps, but now we need to throw that security angle in there to make sure that we're, you know, have mutual authentication. So these, there's some trust in between all these services that are talking to each other and that we can actually manage that trust in a scalable and efficient way. Yeah, two of the bigger points I'm seeing, excuse me, one is, is uh, yeah, the authentication of those microservices. The other one, which really pops on my radar a lot, is now that we are becoming more and more reliant on two, who am I kidding, two, multiple microservices talking to each other uh, over a published API, what's the security of that API? You know, should the authenticated user, presuming, you know, we're using an authenticated API, presuming is that user, um, should he have access to all those uh, 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 API endpoints? Um, are we sure of the data going back and forth across mm -hmm. them? Is there some amount of uh, clarity around what's happening there? That's something that a lot of people are really starting to think about is, as the underlying infrastructure becomes smaller and smaller. Yeah, and I think those are areas where it's still a, a very unsolved problem and interesting areas to explore. So the actual getting the data back and forth, we've seen you know, Google had its uh, protobufs um, and which are, you know, a, a great way to have microservices talk to each other and not worry about what's the endianness of this CPU architecture. Uh, what, you know, how do we deserialize, reserialize something? All these crazy things, and we even see that um, that idea of um, that strong data encapsulation, even at the micro scale. To keep throwing around the micro word a lot, even within like uh, Safari and Chrome, and, and you know, using processor separation and using RPC to trade this data back and forth to minimize those classic vulnerabilities of off by one errors, buffer overruns, buffer over underruns, etc and start to talk about the more things that can be really consequential, like you were pointing out, should this service even have access to data? And me as the, you know, as the providing service, how do I know that? Who's, who's gonna attest this for me? And in the past, I guess in the ancient history of um, networked and network security, there was a MIT Kerberos, and getting into mm -hmm. all kinds of funds of tickets and ticket granting tickets and service tickets and tickets everywhere. Everyone gets a ticket. You get a ticket. Um, the more um, what uh, th this Facebook article called out was they did start along that because it was still a, a well-architected security design, mm -hmm. but not necessarily the most efficient, um, and nor was it easily scaling because it's one thing to have a... Uh, service designed on paper is another thing to actually implement it. And so that's where we saw or um, companies like Google, like even um, Facebook and Yahoo, for example, moving to these like certificate based service um, identification. So that way you can use TLS just to say, yep, here's my certificate. This proves who I am. It's signed. It's got this nice chain of signatures on it that proves all the way back to whatever internal certificate authority. Um, can prove that I got the certificate, and therefore, since I have it, 
at least please talk to me. Um, so that's sort of where we are now in trying to figure out that let's talk to each other and trust that we're talking to each other in a good way. Yeah, I want to back you up half a step because I think there's something important there um, to at least shine a light on for a second. And, and that's that, and it's, it, I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I frequently come off sounding like I'm not the biggest fan of Google. Um, they do a lot of really great stuff. And I think here's one example, you know, talking back about protobufs and those type of things when they were coming out with them. I think Google was really, um, they had their eyes in this particular area further down the road than I think a lot of us did, right? When they started coming out with, because uh, protobufs had all those things you're talking about, but it's also really lightweight. Uh, and then they were doing something similar around, go forget the acronyms, but the ability to do a, a lighter weight HTTP request. So they really mm. had their eye on how do you, how do you minimize the overhead and a lot of those type of things? They realized that we're going to be more and more network focused. And I mean, that's sort of an obvious with the Chromebook and stuff, right? They, that was on their mind. But that really starts coming into play with the microservices. Uh, and, and the simpler and cleaner you can make those protocols, you know, a better chance of your security is around those. So yeah, it, it's it's been interesting to watch that. Uh, and then as you were saying, yeah, it's the, how do you, you know, I was a big fan of Curve. Uh, but at the same time, that's not a lightweight, simple thing to set up, right? So how, how do you take some of those really great security concepts we've had from uh, later year and then actually apply them in a way that is lightweight, easy to access, automatable, uh, so you can store your cred credentials in Vault or what have you, some sort of a, you know, an easily accessed system, which is uh, fairly standardized in a more modern world. So yeah, those are really great things to be thinking about and, and, and looking at. Yeah, and I think um, Speedy, for example, that was their um, that was like the predecessor to HTTP two, and um, same with um, Google was looking at you know how can we improve TCP, and that was where Quick came from, Q U I C, mm -hmm. and even with TLS one point three, again that focus on something as simple as how can we get this channel established as quickly and as effectively as possible because when you get to a certain scale you can actually track one you know one byte of data across the network is this many you know costs this many you know cents or dollars and even if it's just a you know literally you know fractions of a penny to trans transmit one you know byte when you start to get in talk about companies that have terabytes of traffic and storing petabytes of data those fractions of a penny, um, you know, go back to Superman three, and uh, what was I think that was where Richard Pryor was rounding off those pennies to make money. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what they're trying to do here: is uh, solve this, solve the same problem, but perhaps in a more uh, uh, in a less criminal manner. And see, <laughs> wasn't that in one of the oceans as well? I think also now that I think about it, wasn't it oceans was eleven. That's maybe that in game of right movies. Too. Yeah, popular topic. Uh, all these, you know, security experts out there, we just didn't realize it. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's. I think you know, I think you and I are both uh, dealing with some fairly large amounts of uh, uh, traffic in our day jobs, and and yeah, that it, there's two things to that again. One is you know, you know, it saves you money, saves you time. I'm guessing it probably. I'm not guessing. I know it saves on compute, right? If if you're able to set up and tear down those connections, that a little bit easier. Um, then yeah, when you look at the the cost of of how many of those you've done over a period of six months or a year, that that it, it makes a sense to think about this and architect it correctly up front. Yeah, and what's really neat too is getting down into a little bit of the weeds of the technical implementations. For example, um, what what Facebook was describing um, and related to TLS. So you can have that initial like um, 
initial handshake. If you're using TLS 1.3, it's only like, what is it, like three packets back and forth completely, or even a single packet um, to get started. Whereas the old school, we'll call it, um, TLS handshake was like a, a five-step handshake to get going. Yeah. But one of the neat things was um, the session tickets. that So you can actually, so you can do session resumption. And there before, kind of to, to what you were saying, let's be nicer to the CPU. And rather than go through that asymmetric um, uh, keyed, you know, um, uh, crypto algorithms that, that are a little bit more CPU intensive, let's go straight to that symmetric key, like within AES and pull out what's, you know, might be even native implementations within the, the chip itself. And to do that, we're going to encrypt these session tickets. So that way, these services, rather than even just having to exchange, re-exchange their, their identities and their X509 certificates, they can just say, hey, can you decrypt this? Awesome. Let's start going because this was this last key that we used. The catch there, of course, being as an attacker, if we start to talk about like threat models, what if I go and compromise some of those, you know, session ticket keys? So that way I could just restart and, and skip that, you know, restart in the middle, so to speak, and, um, skipping that initial handshake process or skipping that initial identity proof. Um, so there's some really cool things that come out of here in considerations, as well as um, when you were calling out those aspects of like being nice to the CPU, um, just being more efficient in the networking, they were also talking about um, in, in that DevOps mentality of engineering and engineering feedbacks, what they were seeing with um, MIT Kerberos is the service seeing very bursty communications or very slow start communications. And the services and the thread pools that they, they were trying to do to manage those types of two very different traffic patterns were causing a lots of engineering nightmares or headaches. Um, so it's also interesting just to see, you know, there are pure operational impacts to how we want to try and deploy security at scale. Yeah, that's, um, you led me right where I wanted to go. But uh, so let's see, first on the the operational aspect, I mean, yeah, if you think about, or not think, if you interact with any, you know, um, network engineers at some of these larger organizations, uh, they tend to care a lot about, uh, um, you know, being able to model and, and have a solid understanding of the type of data that's being thrown at them. So if suddenly you have a very peaky traffic, which is bouncing up and down uh, and makes it a much harder to troubleshoot what's going on um, and, and allows them to actually model and make sure that they've got, you know, the bandwidth that they need and, and not just bandwidth, but also the, the packet per second, which is um, some people don't realize, but a lot more important, right? When you start dealing with some of this stuff, especially with IPSs. So where, where I want to go with that though, what I think is interesting, as we're talking through this, and this wasn't something that I, we talk, thought about earlier when we were thinking about this topic, but the operational aspect of this um, is something to be kept in mind as you start moving towards newer, more lightweight protocols. If you happen to have the IPS in place or um, some sort of a, I'll say a proxy just to keep it generic, right? But something that's actually doing traffic inspection, IPS, IDS, pick your poison. Uh, they have to be able to understand if you're doing offloading of that TLS either on the load balancer or on the, the sniffer or you're putting certificates on the sniffer, one of these ways to be able to see what's going on there, those devices suddenly now have to be able to support those newer technologies. Um, and I think pe frequently when people buy those devices, they're intending those to be left there you know, in good working order for five years, possibly more. 
So that's something to keep in mind is, is both, um, do you have, uh, uh, what's the phrase to use in the stereo world? Um, forward, uh, I'm going to forget, but there's a phrase they like to use in high-end stereo. It's that you know, your equipment can actually be upgraded down the road. Something to be kept in mind for the networking gear as well. Yeah, and that's, that's a really good point to bring up because it also kind of speaks to where do, you know, where are these DevSecOps teams or where do they want to place their monitoring infrastructure? So if we're saying good things on the one hand, for example, let's encrypt all the traffic. But if we start to go into even TLS 1.3 and we have forward secrecy, so intercepting traffic becomes that much more complex. Um, devices is, you know, it's not necessarily going to play well with, you know, these devices out of the box or how they've been sitting around, as you mentioned, like the last five years, they're going to have to adapt. Maybe there's a move to push that monitoring, that um, detection right actually into the endpoint itself. So that's into the container. And that's where, you know, we were talking about watching syscalls, syscall monitoring, syscall firewalling. And actually, we haven't even used the term firewall in this whole discussion yet. Um, and I'm going to guess that's probably because they're kind of useless right now, or they're not really providing much value. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I see. I see where you're coming from in, in the the case you're making, because yeah, for the last ten years, almost everything goes over eighty and four four three, right? So what's what's that box for? Um, right. But at the same time, we're seeing a lot of it. You know, Istio <laughs> is the 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 sexy kid on the block, or excuse me, the sexy adult on the block for the last few years right now. Um, and that is, to a way, has a firewalling component of it. Um, I have, and this is a lot of this is really sort of uh, a religious thing, right? You know, do you put your IDS in front of the firewall or behind the firewall? Um, when you start thinking about, do you put it inside the container? And this is something, you know, we've thought a lot about this one. My own personal opinion and I, I don't care what vendor you use, is I don't want the sniffer inside the container. Because if you have, oh, say, 20, 30, 40 containers in a box and each got some sort of libpcap running, uh, you just burned up, you know, we were talking about saving cycles, you just burned up a hell of a lot. So it's there's a balance there when you think about how do you how do you design this again and how do you actually think about this? It's it's If you think about, especially if you're using public cloud, if you're on something like Fargate or what's uh, uh, Azure's uh, container instances, you can't trust your neighbor on the same box. So yeah, you want to be able to encrypt and secure the traffic leaving that container and coming into it. But at the same time, you know you need to have both some level of, of um, visibility into what's going on at the network. Uh, so how do you do that? Do you put something inside the container? Do you maybe have the ability to flip your... Uh, um, your network stack into a an easier to troubleshoot mode for a little bit. Um, I know that's also known as making it less secure, but that sometimes that needs to be done. So it's it's interesting to think about where where's the the trade off around that. What do you do? How do you how do you do that? Um, and it, it's yeah, it, it's I think it's going to vary per organization. And probably the people who really care about that, they're not going to be using the public clouds. Uh, and you know, it's it. it and it comes back partially to container thing. It's containers are wonderful; they provide isolation to a degree. But the folks that really care about, um, and this is you know we're we're over the bell curve and this sort of top probably ten or fifteen percent in my mind on on the security conscious side. Uh, they're not going to be running in a shared infrastructure like a, a modern Docker container. They're going to use something more like micro VMs or something like that that actually provides hardware isolation around them. Um, 
but still it's something for everyone else to think about, I think. And how, how do you do some of these things we're talking about from a, an operational point of view? Uh, it's nice if our, our services always work perfectly and they always communicate correctly. You never get you know strange error messages about not being able to connect to a database or when you're other microservices. But at some point, usually back in the real world, you need to have some level of troubleshooting these things. Yeah, that <clears throat> excuse me. That's that's a great point about the um. Let let's not overload all the, the every single container with you know just the replicate replicated copies of the exact same thing. Um, because yeah, why sync down the CPU when maybe we just could do a little bit better application layer logging, um, to at least help with that aspect of debugging. Um, so we can instrument the code a little bit better, get the data back, um, to a central store, do some analysis. And then maybe that's, maybe it's in, here's where we maybe should start talking to some other people too. put a little note down for some interviewees to go, to go look after, you know, how much interesting do we just need NetFlow data versus a full PCAP? Um, so maybe we just need metadata about, you know, systems talking to each other and wh where's the anomaly? And um, I'm studiously avoiding any mention of ML, you know, with an AI to try to detect you know, these anomalies. It's more of just like this service is supposed to go and fetch keys to encrypt data. Why is it suddenly, you know, why is the data direction of data suddenly it's sending out a lot more or it's getting a lot more incoming inbound traffic than outbound? You know, something that's very obvious, something that an if then statement or that, you know, regex based <laughs> machine learning can figure out that type of thing is what I'm aiming for. I, I think there's a, a lot of good which you can do with, and I'll, since we got video, I have to do anytime I say this phrase, I usually have to have to have the, the jazz hands, machine learning. Um, <laughs> but every every time for those on the audio, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of sort of uh, uh, rainbows. Uh, but yeah, there, there's things that ML can do, I think, which, you know, let, let's not try and, and say that it's going to be the, the magic unicorn that's going to save the world. But mathematical, so as far as I'm concerned, my, my viewpoint on ML, it's it's been changing over the last few years and really sort of what it is nowadays, I think of, and we're really off topic here, but um, I think of machine learning is it's really math, right? So can you model what you should be seeing in your application uh, in a reliable way that's reproducible? So I'm not talking so much right now about, ooh, we can do detection of zero days, all that type of, let's leave that away. But at the same time, you know, okay, yeah, you know this application usually talks to a database, it talks to your service mesh, it talks to, um, you know, two or three other things. That's something from an operational point of view that you should be able to, uh, you know, recognize that pattern fairly quickly and then be able to say, hey, I haven't seen, you know, we usually get 50 packets per second it's dropped down to two. Uh, maybe we, we might want to have one of the humans take a look at this. So that type of thing, I think, is, is um, open to be uh, um, supported pretty well on machine learning. Yeah, I, th I think so. And I, I definitely agree with that in terms of constraining it to um, an area with good, rich amounts of data that are relevant to a very narrow problem statement and finding that solution. I think it was one of the other documents I was reading. Um, I think it was about, um, might've been Fizz, which was Facebook's implementation of uh, TLS 1.3. And they were saying in, um, they had a uh, anecdote about they were seeing handshake errors, um, but very, very small number of them. And they didn't use ML to get down to this, but it was the type of thing that would lend itself to that type, I think, of operational detection and anomaly 
analysis because it it ended up they discovered that a particular CPU, um, an instruction set was just wonky on it. So when you have you know data centers with hundreds of thousands literally of systems, you're going to encounter weird hardware problems. Um, even Google, you know, they had a paper a long, long time ago about uh, disks and uptime. And once you have this massive amount of data, you start to see these mean time to failure. When does this hardware actually go wonky? What are the really weird corner cases where actually the planets do align and it's a full moon and the weird thing happens that you never expected it to? Um, and those are really cool learning situations. And um, yeah, I guess I went off topic quite a bit there. But um, it's cool engineering stuff, and it's it's access to data that you can learn from. And I think you know that's how I would also summarize what you were describing in ML. It's math. Yeah, that uh, oh, if I can remember the podcast, something in the last few months. I want to say it was Planet Money on NPR. They did a segment about uh, cosmic rays. Uh, basically, well, it started off where uh, a voting machine in Europe uh, had a pretty significantly high miscount in votes and you know as soon as i heard it i was, I was jo joking in the car oh it's you know it's it's uh um uh solar flares and my wife's like haha you're funny and then it turns out it was solar flares but uh uh you know that that type of thing it sounds really simple i'm, I'm quite happy i wasn't on the team troubleshooting that over at, at facebook because that sounds like <laughs> not my idea of a good time but uh yeah it, it's something you gotta uh, you know as you say, when you start doing this stuff at large scale, there's only a handful of folks and or well, folks or organizations in the world that are doing it up there. But they run into problems that hopefully most of us won't see anytime soon. Yeah, I think that was a great way to bring us back full circle because we started talking about, um, you know, this this article was a bit of a seed about how Facebook is handling mutual identity and t you know mutual authentication using TLS. So I think we've hit also election, how uh, our, the sun is after our election security. Um, and we called out some of those to so try to summarize a couple of the key points too. You know, containers are, you know, those are the easy modern ways right now that we, as the, I, I wouldn't even say the security community, I, get, I would open it up to it's like the engineering online community, you know, computer sciences community, our sandboxing services, having those services be orchestrated at some grand level with something like Kubernetes, and then using these tools like um, uh, this mutual authentication so that we actually have X509s passing you know, identity around with strong attestation. And what I want to do is maybe last couple of minutes turn towards sort of a forward-looking idea of what can also, if we can have services that have strong authentication to each other, what else might we try and build on that? And just to give you an idea of what I'm thinking of, what if we can also say this service can attest that it's the binaries that it got, that it was built with, match the source code that match this one particular Git commit from this one particular branch, and therefore you have a high degree of trust that not only does the service say, you know, attest who it is, but it has a strong attestation that it actually hasn't even been tampered with either. And I don't know if there's things like that that would start to jog your mind, uh, John, about other things that we might see in the future. Um, honestly, not off the top of my head. I think it's, at least from what I see, it's an area which um, 
Well, I'll, I'll back up one step. I mean, it's it's really interesting to hear more and more fo- folks talking about sandboxing in 2019. So people are starting to, and it's partially, you know, as, as, as technology fads come and go, but people are starting to understand and, and realize that um, you can provide these things at a service, but still, as you do that, you need to think about, you know, the, 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 com- the concepts of multi-tenancy and, and API authentication and being able to secure these and, and provide these things at scale within an organization. So I think that's really great to hear and see, but um, yeah, nothing particularly comes to mind right now. Uh, they, like I was talking earlier, one of the things I'm interested in is really around how do you, um, something like an API gateway is to, you know, uh, maybe not the service mesh itself, but something that's able to actually inspect what's coming between, uh, you know, two separate services. And is this something which is kosher or someone to try and do a little more sophisticated attack and, um, that seems to be something that a lot of folks are really interested in being able to have that uh, uh, peace of mind, so to speak, that, that that part of the application has been um, attested to. Yeah, that's a really good point because um, it also reminds me that I got stuck a little bit too much. Um, I usually try to avoid this is just on the, the technical aspects. Here's the design and implementation details sort of how is the application, how are the services being built? In other words, how are, you know, what does it look like for their CICD pipeline? They're getting deployed. How are they doing mutual authentication, et cetera? You know, repeating those words ad, ad nauseum, but it doesn't really speak to what is the service actually doing? And that I think is a great point that you made is, great, we have an API. It provides data, it collects data, but is that data being misused? Is it collecting too much data? Could we actually narrow it down how much it's collecting? Or can we see that that data is being exfiltrated by something as simple as an IDOR and somebody is rotating digits or um, it has weak access controls? And so far, sandboxing, encryption, et cetera, isn't really protecting us against those particular scenarios and those we should not ignore at all. Yeah, that's, uh, um, it's funny. I don't generally, I haven't thought about um, exfiltration from a microservice point of view. I usually think of that something more sort of, and I think a lot of the products are focused around um, exfiltration from an, an IT or, you know, a, a, a corporate IT point of view. Is someone trying to copy something out on on the G drive, the sort of the low hanging fruit of the world? Um, but that's interesting to think about. If you start, I mean, you're almost, well, you just described there's sort of a, a, a side channel uh, um, data exfiltration, right? Um, really hard to track that stuff down, but uh, it's it's definitely something, you know, as we go back through this and think about not just modeling the threat, but modeling how that application should be used. Um, do you need to be providing all that data? It's the first time, you know, think about, and I've seen this a lot in the startup world, uh, the first time someone, uh, when they're writing an application, they're like, okay, we need to get this thing from the database, select star, then go and use one field out of a <laughs> crazy large uh, record. And then sort of usually it's done for performance reasons, but there's also a security value in there. Did did we really need to grab select star? Or maybe we just wanted like, you know, a single particular field and let's not even expose the application to the rest of what's there to use. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I also... I think that's going to use that as a segue to say we're going to have to select star into the news coming up soon. So um, that was a great conversation, John. Thanks again. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll return with news of the week. 
Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records. All from a single, unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by John Kinsella. Some hey. of you told us, <laughs> hey John. <laughs> Some of you told us that you are overwhelmed by the amount of content we distribute. In an attempt to make it a little easier for you to find what you're interested in, we've created our new listener interest list. Sign up for the list and select your interest by visiting securityweekly.com slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. You can also now submit your suggestion for guests in our recently released guest suggestion form. Go to securityweekly.com slash guests and enter your suggestions. Security Weekly will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia this October 10th and 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a 15% discount to sit for any of their bootcamp courses or workshops. Visit securityweekly.com slash hackerhalted to register now. Well, John, I can tell you're eager to dive in. It's been two weeks since our uh, last set of news, and uh, I don't think AppSec took any time off in, in that time. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's been a busy few weeks, huh? Um, I'm not sure if we... Did we manage to find another directory of traversal? No, but we have some other things that are near and dear to my heart that are close to, like race conditions and getting into out of a out of a container into a host operating system. So I think this was the one that is a duo found something for Docker. Yeah. And this was so um yeah so I'll say that I like this because it was at race conditions so that talk to that time of check time of use which is another one of my favorite vulns because it's also kind of rare, but pretty interesting. But um, I think you have some ideas or some opinions around this. What are your thoughts on this particular vuln? I, I, might, I might have one or two. So I think what's really interesting about this is, yeah, the, the talk twos are hard to do. Um, it, it, you know, theoretically, they're very, uh, um, you're able to, you know, they're theoretically possible. But usually, if you're doing a code review or this has been brought up to someone as something you might want to consider, uh, usually very quickly get a hand wave. But that's something that, you know, it's really difficult to actually reproduce in the real world. Um, where, well, our, our buddies here sort of showed that wasn't quite the case in this particular case. So, um, yeah, what they're doing really, uh, for those who haven't looked at this closely, um, when you run Docker CP to copy a file out of a Docker container, that actually goes and they they create a context, they create a symlink uh, at the Docker, uh, the Docker runtime um, outside of the container. And there is a split second in time when that is being set up and change ownership that if you happen to be banging on that particular path within a container that you will get uh, um, actually a link out to the host. So that's a, um, a container breakout, right? Which is a bad thing. And, and we keep saying, hey, you know, containers are fairly new. So you're gonna have to expect this type of thing coming. And this is why I was just talking in the last segment that folks that actually really care about are, are, are really, really care about security 
um, and can't take that flexibility. Our, the flexibility of a container is not, um, how would I say, uh, attractive enough. They're still going to be using a virtual machine. It might be a container within a VM. But yeah, the, 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 really the problem with this one to me, uh, again, like, you know, it's, I, there's folks over, lots of folks at Docker that I really know and, and I respect, but this is something that was first reported a year ago. Um, and it, what caught my attention, like, you know, as we've talked before, when I see a new vulnerability come out, I sort of, how I, how I look at it and how do I see what's going on and what caught my eye on this one, CVE 2018. Hang on a second, we're halfway through uh, 2019. Why are we getting a new CVE with a 2018 date? Oh, that's because people have known about right. this for a while. So that was um, unfortunate. Uh, and I understand it's not an easy thing to fix. Uh, same time, if you look, I went over and I, I was yapping with some of the Kubernetes folks, and I'm like, uh, turns out that this is completely not a problem there. They're not using the uh, the runtime to do this copy. They actually have a different way of actually copying the files out. So um, there's always a way around it. And at least, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of full disclosure. I've always have been. It's like, at least let people know there's something there. Uh, and it's harder to do, I get, in a startup where, you know, you've, you've got the VCs going after you or not going after you, trying to support you. They will be going after you if you if you uh, get your name in the wrong way too many times. By the by the way, there's been a change of CEO at Docker, um, and so there's there's some things going on there, right? And I, I get that, but still, it's it's a little. I wish they had been um, a little earlier to announce this. Yeah, I think what what stands out for me on, on the this t- specific Vaughn, Vaughn um, as well as some others is just trying to also look at it from a uh, all lack of a better term, like a real world threat model. Like how risky is this? Or in this, rather than just saying how risky, being try to be more clear about questions like, what would it take for someone to exploit this? And do we have any mitigating controls? Do we think that this is feasible? Or do we think somebody with the, like, the, the, the level of access to pull this one particular vuln off can do something else completely as well? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really quickly on that one. It, it's it, you're spot on. It's um, when I was doing code review and pen tests. It's well, pen tests a little cleaner, but especially on the code review side, and you're like, oh, line sixty four. That's going to be tricky for you, right? It's one thing to put that into a report, but occasionally customers would sort of push back and go, I, I'm not too sure about that. Can you show me? It's like, oh, okay. Now I have to actually code an exploit or show how this possibly could be done. Um, and yeah, that, that's what people should be doing. You can't take everything at face value and, and go and chasing tails, trying to repair this type of stuff. But, um, and what sort of, uh, um, made this one escape out is I think it was Suse had some, uh, uh, sample exploit code in part of their, uh, patch report. So now there's actual code out in the wild and that's what sort of got people going, okay, we got to launch on this, but yeah, no, it's the right way to think about it. Yeah. And I think. Um, my tangent, speaking of pen tests, is that often there's, um, you know, talk about threat models, self-XSS. So that's often a difficult one to actually say what is the actual impact there. But I always look at it to say cross-site scripting, it should be fixed. The data wasn't being escaped and the output wasn't being handled correctly. So go and fix it. But I did, to go on a, a minor rant, I did have a recently reviewed a pen test where we were recommended to um, not use robots.txt because developers might put something sensitive in there, and um, which is a little bit infantilizing of developers. I don't think they're actually all 
stupid or even the large majority of them that stupid. And another one was sort of to your point like that, hey, look here at line 63, we got a report, uh, one of the findings was there are 80 bits of entropy, although they didn't say it this way, they said you have a random number and a user ID. This should be all random, but so it can't be predictable. But it was actually 80 bits of randomness there plus a user ID. So one of the questions was exactly what is there to fix here and should we do, you know, from your perspective, is 81 bits that much better now than 80? So I it's like it reminds, minor rant. It, yeah. it reminds me of the standard, the password complexity of stuff, right? You know, it's, um, I, th I think we've <laughs> talked about this in the past, but like if, if your password's long enough, it doesn't matter too much if you have that, you know, the upper lowercase and the dash and the, the, the number one in there as well. But yeah, it's, um, some, I, I would expect a little, but that would definitely give me a giggle, giggle on a pen test. Something that's actually, and you know, I'm disclosure on here. I don't think we've talked about it. When I say penetration test, I'm talking about a penetration test, not the point and click stuff, which you get from some, some people out there, but that's something that's going through a human. So I'd expect them to have a little more sort of, uh, Hey, is this something the way I really want this set up or not? And, or, or is this, is this combo we should be making, or maybe we should left that out of the report, but yeah, it's, they still escape through every now and then. Yeah, yeah, they still escape through. Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. Um, let, let's use that to also talk about, um, you know, speaking of threat models and how would we, you know, approach an engineering scenario or here's a feature that has problems. Um, Google Cloud had a problem with their uh, G Suite enterprise accounts where they indicated they were storing back or they were storing plain text passwords as far mm -hmm. back as like, 2005. Um, now, in the interest kind of to to your point a little bit earlier about disclosure, they were they disclosed this. They let people know that was going on. They also explained that, you know, passwords were probably only being exposed in this manner for about 14 days, just in the way their systems and logging was working. And they explained why this existed. So this was existed initially to, you know, here's a functionality that users are asking for. And they want to be able to onboard a new person. So how do you do that sort of trust on first use? How do you get that initial, you know, share the password with somebody so they can start using their G Suite account? And it just so happens that in addressing this particular feature, they made this accident with this mistake where they were actually saving off plain text passwords. And this is, um, it's the tough part of a full disclosure, right? Because this is, this is a step. Perfect example for the stand, standard use case why when people are our standard argument when people say that FD is not a great idea uh, and this this is because this is a, a retail thing right and it lands on the front page of the paper everyone mm -hmm. gets all sort of scared and worried and it's like well, dude it was in a log file I mean that's you know I think in an enterprise setting that wouldn't have uh, um, had quite the response that this one did but um, and that's the thing how do you how do you disclose to someone who is at a a less sophisticated level. Um, and that's pretty tough to do. It is. And I think because we saw this because uh, Twitter started this, or at least as, as I noticed around like basically logging of passwords two years ago, maybe it was um, when they, you know, they did another disclosure saying, oh, look, we accidentally logged a bunch of passwords. Um, and to my mind, it is a sign of sophistication that you can come forth you know, disclose that type. I don't know that we necessarily would call it a breach. Maybe we can, <laughs> that, that's more the, the legal aspect, but is, you know, a mishandling at the very least. But to mm -hmm. say, here's some logging, 
every application needs logging of some sort um, because just like we were talking about in the previous segment, how do we, how else can we debug what our applications are doing? We really want to know what's going on with them. Um, logging helps. Obviously, logging sensitive things like passwords or if we get into like PII, other sensitive data, those are probably not ideal. But if you have those logs, if you can detect it, react, and I think what's kind of missing sort of what you were saying too, um, if you know, paste, you know, readers, people who see that they don't necessarily can appreciate if you have strong logging of the logs, let's say, or access controls, or you have a strong incident response capability, you can check to a relatively high degree that indicates, you know, it doesn't look like this was accessed by anyone who was not one of the DevOps people that's actually on the team responsible for this. Sure, maybe there's a malicious insider, maybe there are stolen credentials. So we'll we'll acknowledge that, but let's set aside that for a second and just say, we can say with confidence, it doesn't look like it was misused. Confidence isn't 100%, but it's a pretty good indicator. And I think this just ultimately speaks well to the idea of disclosure being a good thing, um, mm -hmm. as much in the sense of here's the lessons learned for even if the big companies with massive multi-million dollar security budgets and security personnel on the order of hundreds rather than you know a dozen if they can make mistakes everybody's going to be making mistakes and i think it's um you know not we're beating this horse pretty well but one last from me on it i think there's also a really good learning point here sort of what you're just saying but specifically to um i'll say junior developers right? it could be it could be the intermediate or seniors but hey you know when you find something wrong don't don't try to shove it underneath the, the carpet. At least, you know, make sure the people inside the organization know and then let them have that conversation about, okay, do we disclose or not? Um, but, you know, it's, I've, there's a few organizations I've seen recently that have this very sort of, oh, don't tell the boss, you know, then, we'll, then they'll get in trouble. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, you have to have that level of, of trust. And I mean, the same energy out there listening to us as well, right? You know, when your people come and say something to you, you know, this sort of management 101, but just to reiterate, don't, don't don't be mean to the guys. Let you know, encourage. Thanks for telling me. Let's take care of us. How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Um, and it's. I think that's even more important in an infosec point of view than than it can be in others. Yeah. If the if the first instinct is to blame the messenger, then you you already start off on the wrong foot, and it just means yeah. that. Problems aren't going to get surfaced. They're not going to be fixed. They're not going. You know, those systemic causes aren't going to be um, found or, or addressed. Mm -hmm. Which, speaking of systemic causes, um, let's talk about GitHub again because GitHub is doing fantastic things about. You know, obviously they're where developers work, but they're actually making I think developers' lives a lot easier. They started out with you know just for the just for the fact of hosting repos and helping to have clicking, um, you know, point and click be able to merge because for the life of me, I will never remember more than two Git commands off the top of my head and the syntax correctly. But in this case, um, they have some really cool security announcements. One is this dependency insight. So they can, will say, hey, you have some third-party open source libraries, some Ruby gems, some NPM, you know, some modules that have some known vaults in it. You should probably fix them. Now they even have their, their uh, Dependabot that will send you a pull request that says, hey, by the way, if you just merge this and your tests go fine, 
go for it. You know, we fix, we, we can update this for you. Um, let's just have a human in the loop just to make sure things don't go wonky. But um, this looks to me like a fantastic, very small, but very meaningful, very useful type of feature. Yeah, it's it's solving what I refer to as the, the now what problem, right? You know, it's one thing to tell me that I've got a vulnerability. Okay, what do I do about that? Uh, I bet this is going to make some startups unhappy out there, though. There's a, a few players in that space that were, you know, they've been doing this type of thing for, for free. So um, good on GitHub. I, I hope it, it doesn't um, get the other folks to uh, lose too much sleep. Yeah, and it looks like, and I, you know, it looks like too. Microsoft is definitely has a, a great stewardship of this between um, GitHub continuing to roll out features like this and moving into um, you know great IDE types of plugins. Yeah, one last one on there. Um, I can't remember if we talked about it on here. GitHub also announced uh, they're now going to start doing image repositories. Um, mm. People might be used to thinking of that as Docker Hub. By the way, did I mention the CEO's gone? <laughs> um, so there's, it's, it's, and yeah, all this stuff is happening over at GitHub and, and guys, remember this is Microsoft, uh, you know, I'll, I'll riff on this for, give me 10 seconds. Uh, Visual Studio Code came out. It has a Kubernetes plugin. Well, Visual Studio Code has been out, but it has this Kubernetes plugin just hit version 1.0. You can point and click and, and monitor your, your Kubernetes cluster from within your IDE for free. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's impressive. Continues to be impressive what Microsoft's been doing for the last few years. It is really cool. And I think switching to uh, on the topic of Microsoft, there were um, two other things that I, that I called out um, uh, related to fuzzing. One was this um, memory ranger. So this, this was a project that was uh, presented at Black Hat 2018, Black Hat EU 2018, and then updated most at a, another conference um, this year. But it's basically, it's, it's great content if you want to learn more about modern attacks against Windows kernel drivers, how they'd be compromised, how, you know, what that, what the security model looks like for them, as well as it provides some, demonstrates some ways that you could sandbox or isolate them using the hypervisor. So using CPU features um, to protect those drivers, because even way back to Windows NT4, the um, you know the video card was operating in ring zero, and that was one of the great sources of your blue screen of death, as well as you know when things are operating in ring zero, when their drivers and drivers aren't always you know the highest quality software, great place for exploits as well. It was a source for lots of fun. <laughs> yeah, I know. I could hear you trying to restrain yourself on the, on the, the laughter, the fun there. Yeah. Clearly, it, it was, especially for me, you know, th th those types of flaws kept my early consulting years uh, it, with a very good success rate off of just one, you know, just a very small handful of vulnerabilities. So throw out thought out there, what this one makes me think of is um, there's some pretty good folks out there doing work in memory forensics. Might be interesting to have them add them to the list of people we want, might want to reach out to in the pod in the future. Oh, yeah, definitely interesting. And um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll come back to that in a second, because I also wanted to talk about here, speaking of fuzzing, there was also um, a razor tool that um, came across my radar that was specific to data races in the Linux kernel. And 
it's built off of um, a project also out that that was um, came out of Google Google called SysColor um, that was just a more generic um, uh, Linux kernel SysCall uh, fuzzer. Um, this particular one, Razer, um, was had some refinements to it, taking advantage of the LLVM toolchain, which is going to continue to come up as one of my uh, uh, callbacks, one of my favorite tools out there. And it's just really neat the way it's focusing on this one particular type of vulnerability. And you can see on the repo has a list of a couple really nice use after free, null pointer DREFs, um, just finding a bunch of vulns. And we could talk about whether or not those may have been directly exploitable, you know, go back to kind of the beginning of this conversation. But fixing a flaw is improving code quality. So that's never a bad thing, I'm going to say in my book. What I think is really neat about these is um, these fuzzers coming out, especially the kernel ones, because uh, <laughs> well, let's be straight, you know, A, a lot of us aren't going to use these. B, uh, even fewer are going to be able to write them. But the fact that these are out there and open easy for someone to grab that tool and start working with allows finding these type of issues that much easier. That's really the important part about this to me. So instead of uh, an O-Day hiding you know, underneath the, the covers for six, 12 months or longer, um, people have the ability to stress these components uh, in a kernel that much more uh, and, and get those things taken care of sooner, hopefully. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we saw that, you know, having that community focus where the skills are to be able to write the fuzzers as well as run and interpret the results of them. Um, that was where we talked a while back about Microsoft Azure and um, they yep. are having fuzzer in the cloud. Um, mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about AFL and, you know, there's some projects around that just running it in the cloud and even just being able to spin up having having access to a cloud so you can run thousand instances, you know, of image magic or ghost script or, you know, pick on whatever, you know, uh, video codec you want to go play with or um, things like that. Just having access to that um, type of infrastructure is really actually great for hobbyists so they can be part of the community and finding these effectively and then helping us secure all of the code. I think that sort of also there was one other thing that this is pretty small, but that, that I also wanted to highlight um, Autodesk. Um, they open sourced or, or put onto their repo just with what they're calling continuous threat modeling. Um, I don't know. It, it's more of documentation about threat modeling itself. And it just sort of a philosophy of threat modeling rather than um, I'm not quite sure what the continuous aspect on it is other than you should be doing threat modeling. But I did want to highlight that because if I did have a wish list, it's that I don't know that we have enough good resources for talking about threat modeling and being able to track the data of it. So I know Adam Shostak does some great work about it, has some great books. You know, there's that whole history of Microsoft and Stride and Dread. But I don't know if there's any projects that are actually in, in a good way of nomenclature, categorization that everyone, I say everyone, I'm not sure exactly who everyone means, but just when we say, what's the difference between this self-XSS? How do we talk about this uh, 80 bits of entropy that is probably sufficient for most situations? Or even when you're talking about like um, this race condition and you know, that the duo found with uh, in Docker containers, those are all tied back to threat modeling. And what are you building 
what could go wrong? What are we going to do about it? And so it's just sort of if I did have a soapbox for this um, this particular episode, it would be more resources for threat bottling would, would be it. And I think the important part thing there, because I think OWASP has a project around threat modeling, don't they? But I think one of the one the thing that's important there to me on that is um, making it usable by the developers. So I'm I'm scrolling through here on the um, if folks go to that GitHub repo for the Autodesk project, um, the README itself is um, not as uh, uh, how will I say? It doesn't really give the value of the depth of what's going on in there. There's a few markdown files I'm looking at. There's a secure developer secure developer checklist. That's actually pretty cool. Um, a little long, but uh, it actually walks through each stage in development and actually the things you should be checking for. Um, so I think that's something that's pretty easily consumable. And, and yeah, these are really great things to have out there. Yeah, I think and this would be a great topic um, for, for an upcoming episode is talk about this, tie it into um, OWASP did update four, to 4.0, their application security verification standard, as well as they do have some, they, they do have, for example, a cloud threat modeling project that sort of has a, if, if this is the situation, when this happens, then this should happen unless something else happens. And it's sort of a way to, to be developer friendly in terms of writing documentation that can be um, turned into code that essentially is describing particular threat models. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll dig that out and that will be, a, I think, a fun topic for the future. Um, so I think, so that, that went through my list, John. Anything else you wanted to um, touch on? I think that just sort of the, the the big one for me for the last week or two was the the Docker issues. Um, yeah, I, I think we've over the last uh, this the talks we've had today. I think we've we've thought up a bunch of really interesting things to to bring back in the future and dig into deeper. Yeah, I think so. And that'll be good because we'll definitely dive into some um, some memory forensics. I think we got to get somebody on here to talk about fuzzing as well because that's a really fun topic. And um, the good thing is that we're not going to take another two weeks off. And I want to, we'll be back next week. So I want to say thank you, John, for this conversation. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we are going to see you next week on Application Security Weekly.